Hello. Hey, John. How are you doing? Uh, well, Dan, it's going to be a little bit of an unusual show for me. I wonder if the listeners are going to be able to hear the difference. Are you uh, recording with a different... I mean, should we reveal what happened just before the show started, or should we keep it mysterious? Well, no, I want... I want people to know because I'm because I'm working at a, you know, that, a considerable disability here. Yeah, what's happening? Um, I was unable to find a uh, an eighth to quarter inch adapter for my oh, headphone jack. That's not good. And so I do have a lot. You know, I have because of my um, long career in in pro audio. Right. <laughs> sure. I have eighth to quarter inch adapters. All over, I could I could pave uh, the road to hell with all the quarter inch, eighth inch adapters, male and female, <laughs> every 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 direction. Now, for the people only- who don't know what this is, there's two common cable sizes in audio cables. One is bigger than the other, but it's very typical to adapt the big one to the small one, and sometimes even vice versa. And yeah, that's what it- you're talking about. The headphones nowadays come with eighth-inch jacks, and then they have screw-on quarter-inch jack right. adapters. Right. Because your computer has an eighth-inch input, but every piece of pro audio gear has a has a quarter-inch input. So, right. Anyway, I did find an adapter finally, but Dan, guess what? It's a mono adapter. Now, you know, the audio people listening are recoiling in horror because they know I'm only monitoring you and myself in one ear. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So the entire show is going to be done in my left ear only. Right. That's your good ear. That's that's right. I'm searching uh, with my good ear closed. No, (laughs) No, my left ear is my good ear, actually. You're right. The right ear is the one that has suffered the most snare drum hi-hat damage right makes sense yeah and so here i am and um you know i'm just gonna have to soldier on i mean i can't are you speaking through the same microphone because it sounds the same to me it sounds like it always does same microphone all the other all the other you know sometimes dan i use the um the apogee analog to digital uh preamps Sure. And some sometimes I use the focus right. So far, no one has ever mentioned hearing a difference. Although, on this show and on Roderick on the Line, both uh, in both shows, my audio is captured after having been reduced down to eight bit audio by the internet, filtered right. through a, a coffee filter run underground for an hour. <laughs> yeah, that's about in right. Muddy water, and then. Um, you know, and then de-est by uh, by a piece of Behringer compression compression gear. So, right. people that that love the sound of good, crisp quality podcast audio mm-hmm. have never heard that from me, uh, except on Omnibus and the Late Friendly Fire, where I recorded at my end. Right. So the difference between a Focusrite and an Apogee is probably a negligible compared to the other things that that degrade the audio quality. Yeah. I mean that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean you as a as a pro audio person who has presumably racks and racks of gear, uh-huh. fans whirring all the time 
And yet in the style in the style of 2011 or 2014, we still record over Skype and it sounds like I'm talking to you through a walkie-talkie. Well, <laughs> it's not quite it's not quite that bad. Yeah, well. But I hear you. Mhm. Mm-hmm. I hear you and I can hear you. And so I that's can hear you to... as George Bush famously said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when when he did he wasn't really listening. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. I have a little bit of a cough because I recently drove through some uh, states that were shrouded in smoke from the western yeah, fires. That's, that's crazy. What's going on? It seems like just every year now, like clockwork, we just can anticipate that happening now. It's just yeah. it's going to be every year. <clears throat> that's what's going to happen. I have sensitive lungs. I'm not. I'm not thrilled about fires being the thing, you know, we always, we used to sit up here and say, ha ha ha, we've got all the water we need. Mm-hmm. The weather is mild. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing we have to worry about is earthquakes and volcanoes. And, you know, Lord knows just like, just like people that, that build in the Mississippi river Valley or build in, build in Cape Hatteras or, uh, or I'm sorry, Hatteras mm-hmm. or, uh, and, or anywhere on the Florida coast, the last natural disaster was surely the last one to ever happen. <laughs> right. So what what are the chances? I mean, that's that there just that's just logic. That's just yeah. logic. The last one that will ever happen. That is a thing that affected the people of the past. But uh, but yeah, this introduction of a hundred plus temperatures and late summer forest fires, boy, it's a drag. It just takes all the smugness right out of us up here. Mm, no doubt. Yeah. But fortunately, we all have N95 masks uh, that we're. But you're still coughing despite the despite <clears throat> the mask. You're still coughing. Well, I wasn't. I was in a I was in a motor vehicle, and I had the uh, I had the air uh, recirculate recirculator on hmm. as part of the air conditioning, and uh, I thought I wasn't. I thought I was immune. I thought the the particulate wouldn't get in, but it did. It got in through the air conditioning, through the air conditioning system. It got in somehow, and now I have uh-huh. asbestosis, mesotheliomia. No, I don't. You don't have that. <clears throat> no, but I am. I am vulnerable to that kind of thing. And of course, you know, I just I was on a road trip, and so although I feel confident in tying my cough to. The forest fires, I also have this like lingering feeling like, oh shit, maybe I picked up COVID in a truck stop bathroom and now I'm mm. coughing because I've got to have a breakthrough infection and so I'm going to get myself tested today. I mean, I think that is the thing everybody would think if they had any kind of real life cough of any kind, like not even that persistent, just slight a slight cough that is there for more than a day or two. I think everybody's with you on that. I think that's a, everyone would say, yeah, that's, that's a valid concern. Yeah. That's where I'm at right now. I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to get COVID. No, I don't know if I'm kind of, I feel like I'm maybe alone there. Yeah. You're the only guy that didn't want to get it. Don't want to get it. So I hope I don't, I hope I didn't get it. Um, despite all of our precautions as a family, we're all very precautious, but still, you know, traveling across America, you meet a lot of people. You meet a lot of ding-dongs out there in the yeah. good old U.S. of A. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, you know, and I'm a compulsive hand washer, but you still got to find a way to get out of that bathroom, you know? Like, a lot of yes. those doors open inward, and if you're in a short sleeve shirt, 
and it's a and it's a hand it's a blower hand dryer. You're really trapped in there, Dan. Until either somebody comes and opens the door for you, or you know, usually I find a way to like use my pocket, use some corner of my pants to to open sleeve, the door. Maybe use a sleeve, a paper well, no, towel. If you're in a short sleeve shirt, oh, there's no right, towels. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know. So eventually, you're gonna you know. Sometimes you have to wash your hands. Then you realize the doorknob problem. You open the door. You hold it open with your heel and then see if you can reach the sink again, if you can reach back to the sink to wash your hands again. Sometimes you can't do it. So there are a lot of challenges in traveling. I, I never should have done it. I should have stayed home. But Where is it that you went for people who don't – I think you've talked about this on some other uh, programs, but perhaps not uh, here. Where is it that you are or went and why? Uh, my family, we went to uh, uh, Columbus for a. That's Columbus, Ohio, for uh-huh. people not in, not uh, following along, on, in their atlases, which is um, three quarters of the way across the country. We went through Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky. Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Nevada, Oregon. No, Idaho again, Oregon, Washington. So it was a, a big loop, giant loop around the the soft white underbelly of the United States. <laughs> And, um, yeah, a lot of road, a lot of road time and a lot of, uh, a lot of good times, great memories. And, uh, and maybe, uh, like a family wide case of COVID it's hard. Uh, hard I to hope see. not. I hope not. Yeah, let's hope not. How's your summer been? Have you, um, you know, we were in Texas and I thought of you, but as you know, Texas always seems so big, uh, until you're in the largest state of the union anchored down in Anchorage. Oh, Right. But I was all the way up in the Panhandle, which is three Texases away. Yeah, from that's Utah. not. That's not. You know, it's like before I'd ever been to California. You know, people are like, "Oh, I'm in California." I'm like, "Oh, you go to LA much?" I'm like, "I'm in San Francisco." I'm like, "Yeah." So do you go to LA much? And they're like, that's another country, basically. Like sure. you can't. <laughs> you're not. That's not the same thing. And I think Texas, and in a way, Florida. Although Florida's a little different, you know, because you got to you've got to kind of if you're going to the south. Florida area, uh, you, you've got, and you're coming from anywhere but in Florida already, you drive through every part of Florida. Sure, and you got to go to Orlando. You, right. could, you could skip Tampa. Please, please but, do. But it <laughs> is right over there. You could There's just no reason turn anyone right should stop in Tampa. It's, hey, now. No. Uh, well, yeah, well, that, you know what you're saying about San Francisco and LA is true until Elon Musk's uh, hypertrain. Oh, right, that'll uh, change maglev, everything. Yeah, maglev underground hypertrain uh, makes that a, a, a half su- hour a trip. super train, if you will. It's a little bit of a super train. Yeah, but yeah, Texas. Um, Texas is a funny place. Yeah, and did you have any interesting experiences here while you're here? You know, not a one, no. not a single interesting experience did I have in Texas. Oh, no, wait, wait, of course I did. You know, did I, you? I was about to say no interesting experiences, but of course I did. There was a weather phenomenon hmm. 
uh, where, you know, it was kind of, it wasn't exactly tornado warning, warning, uh, but there was a, there was a cloud that, as you know, the sky in Texas is, is big. And there was this cloud that kind of was creating, uh, it was raining, but it wasn't raining near us, but the cloud did feel like it was very near us. And the way the sun was shining through it, it was creating these sun sprites, um, all these like little like glowing figures dancing around the cloud. There was wow. a halo. At, at a certain point, it looked like there were two suns. Wow. Uh, it was this, it was the, it was a whole Star Wars ride of weather, uh, that was making up for the fact that there wasn't a damn thing on the ground, except for, uh, you know, we passed through a couple of towns that once upon a time had a last picture show, but that was in 1970 (laughs) and now it's all, that's all gone. It's all gone. Right. But the weather, yeah, the weather was interesting. It's so funny when you cross between those states, when you cross between American states, it's not your imagination that things change. They change right away. The difference between the Oklahoma panhandle and the Texas panhandle should be a negligible difference. It's it's an imaginary line. But there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. No, you're absolutely right. And you know, even more stark of a difference was when I remember when I was driving up through Vermont and then going into Canada, it was like you crossed the border and it looked very, very, very different, like 10 feet away from where the other one was. And I think it's true what you're saying about these states too. But why, like, why is that? What's... Is it a different fertilizer? What's uh, what's happening? <laughs> I feel like all even though those lines, those state lines are big straight lines drawn, you know, kind of absently by surveyors on a giant table somewhere in Virginia, they were surveyed by by intrepid people in Stetsons. Right. Or proto Stetsons, you yeah. know, like actual beaver hats. And yeah, there's just a sort of natural, probably, probably an inclination as as people were doing those surveys that they just kind of followed what would be the gradations of climate difference. You know, there, you, as you're moving north, you're moving out of whatever that subtropical Texas is into this, you know, kind of a the plains. And those lines get drawn. I mean, the whole story of the Oklahoma Panhandle is a is kind of a fascinating story. But even crossing between Texas and New Mexico, it was like it was like the sun did a uh, the sun changed, and then almost immediately when you're in New Mexico, then you're in the mountains. You like the mountains start right away, and and you've been for for two days in a place where there, there was no mountain. There was not a hill. There was, you know, half the time there weren't trees. And then all of a sudden, boom, mountains. And then the whole reality for the rest of your trip across the United States is you're interacting with mountains in some way or another. And uh, I don't know. I've been across the U.S. back and forth. I was going to say direction. many times, right? You've yeah, done that. You this know, old hat for you. 50 times. But every time you do it, it's a you have a whole new experience because you just – you take even a slightly different route 
you get off in slightly different towns and you know and a whole different a whole different thing unfolds i really like the united states i mean it's you know for all of its for all of the the bad things you hear about hear about it on the internet uh-huh. it really has a lot going for it it does i mean i don't know if you know this but the united states is one of the biggest countries that's right isn't it is it the is it the third biggest country i mean i i think it's the first Oh, you're one of those. America is the biggest country. Yes. I mean, I haven't Uh measured it, but I know that there isn't a way to find out. So we're just going to have to. Like you can't, it can't be measured in any conventional sense. So, right. I mean, you just look at the Mercator projection and it couldn't be clearer. That's right. The the second largest country is Greenland. Uh huh. Um, And then Australia. America is the first largest country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. I don't see how anybody could dispute it. No. I mean, you've been, you've walked across it. So. Uh huh. And across Canada, you know, all four (laughs) corners of Canada. Uh huh. And you could, you could do it in a long afternoon. So is this just sort of like a last hurrah for the summer? Like a final, like, let's do a trip. Uh, We haven't done anything good over the summer and and let's do it. Or was there a a purpose to the journey? Other than the journey. There was a a wedding, but there are a lot of, uh, a lot of easier ways to manage a wedding. Sure. I think in, <coughs> excuse me, that's the, uh, that's the forest fire slash COVID. Yeah. COVID fire. Um, my mom and my sister and I both have long road trip histories. Uh, my mom and sister have road trip together many times. It was a thing. I mean, every, all three of us kind of like to get behind the wheel and go a long way. My mom and sister both also like to get behind the wheel and drive a short distance. They just like being behind the wheel. My dad loved being in his car. His car was his place. My sister feels the same way. She just loves being in her car. And I and my mom too. Doesn't matter they're in traffic, doesn't matter if they're running errands. That's like a you know, superpower they, right there. They went to the hardware store. Oh, they forgot a thing. They'll turn around and go right back to the hardware store a second time. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nope. Yep. If you say, oh, I've got a thing. I got to pick it up. It's on the other side of town. It's five o'clock. They're like, I'll go get it. I'll go get it. I'll get it for you. Wow. Even in traffic? Do they care about traffic? Don't seem to. Off they go. Dang. Now, I don't want to drive my car a short distance, uh, but I will drive 6,000 miles. (laughs) Right. And so the three of us... We all have, you know, we have a lot of road trips under our belt. We think of ourselves as road trippers. Yeah. We think of the times we've been in in the United States and all these different sort of seasonings. It it affects how we see the world. And none of us have done it in a while. And I think crucially, my daughter is just now, I've taken her on a couple of long road trips, but she was too young to, she was just in her car seat kind of. Uh, goo goo gaga but sure. now she's old enough that that she will remember this road trip. And so it it felt like and and her mother, my daughter's mother, is not a road tripper and had not been had has never driven across the United States and was interested in it. You know, what was the longest like drive that she'd ever done before this one? I mean, I think that she drove down to. California, maybe uh-huh. 
once. I mean, you can get down to California, spend the night in a motel halfway down type of type of drive. Sure. Um, but you know, my kid is 10 and a half, as you know, because your daughter is same is age, same age. Exactly. And when you think back to when you were 10 and a half, yeah, let's set the way back machine to when Dan was 10 and a half. Uh-huh. <laughs> What was this about? 1982? 81? 81? Yeah. 81, 82. Yeah. You remember. I do. You remember a lot. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. I remember a lot, a lot. Yeah. You can put yourself in 1981, 82. Sure. Absolutely. And it's not just like, oh, I remember the time that my aunt fell into a vat of boiling oil. (laughs) It's like, no, I remember the I remember my clothes, I remember the video games, yeah, I sure. remember the walk to school. So, when you're raising a child, you know, you have these you follow along and you're like, "Oh, she's 5 years old and we're doing all these interesting things, these enriching things. I know it's getting into her at some level." Yeah. But she's 5 years old. She's at best going to have a kind of sense impression, maybe she's going to remember the Eiffel Tower. But it's not, you know, it's not going to be part of her cosmology. Sure. But at 10 and a half, you drive her across the country. Some of that is going to stick. And I know because I went on long, weird trips with my dad at that age. And I remember them well. I still think of them as formative. Right. So, and also 10 and a half feels like an age that, And this is why I feel like she was the perfect age during the pandemic, old enough to be kind of self-sufficient or self, um, you know, able to spend hours at a time kind of finding her own reading or doing her own work, but also not old enough to really know what she was missing, not, not old enough to, to not kind of just accept the circumstances as just another thing. And if, you know, if she'd been 14, I think it would have been really hard. If she'd been four, it would have been really hard for different reasons. But right now, the idea of putting her in a car and driving her across the country and saying, look over there, honey, you know what kind of cactus that is? (laughs) Like she's old enough to roll her eyes at me. Yeah. (laughs) But she's not old enough to, to hate it or to internally resist the the whole idea. Uh-huh. She can internally resist um, trying to retain any knowledge of the different cactuses that her father has pointed out. Right. But there, but most of the things that happen are going to unfold in a way that she's just absorbing them. She's not like sitting petulantly, sure, sure, listening to the cure. Uh-huh. <laughs> Right. She's not, she's not by default, just rejecting everything. Right. Right. And I don't, I don't know how much longer that window lasts uh-huh. where I can say, you know what, you know what we're going to see today? Like this was the, like we went by the Hanford nuclear reservation. What's that? I, this feels well, like something I should know about. Hanford is the place in, in Eastern Washington where they built the, they built the atom bomb. You know, they, they did all that work. You're talking at, the, the Manhattan Project? Yeah. That was there? 
Well, you know, Los Alamos is where the science was being done, but right. Hanford was the first. Oh, is that operating- like that giant city place where everyone was working to actually build them? And I think it is something else. Yeah, it's not a city anymore. I mean, there was there were sites all over. There was one in in uh, Tennessee Valley Authority had a had a big place that they built a city out of out of nowhere down there. Hanford was the first reactor, uh, and the reactor stayed. The reactor, there's one of those reactors is still reacting. No kidding. Yeah, but they, you know, they built the bombs there, um, and and it was, you know, one of these top secret sites, and now is of course like a super fun site and whatnot. But it's still, it's still there, and it's still, you know, it's kind of visible in the distance from the road. And my kid has lately, she came to me about four months ago and said. Tell me about Adam's bomb. Oh. And I, I, said, I, I, I bomb. pray for the day. I can't wait for the day when my one of my kids says that to me. Yeah, I was pretty excited. And I was like, what do you want to know about Adam's bomb? And she said, well, what is Adam's bomb and mm-hmm. why do we talk about it? And I was like, well, you, my darling, you have come to the right person. Yeah. And so ever since then, I've given her, you know, we watched a lot of Hiroshima footage we I talked about the physics of it, the chemistry of it, and you know, and I I I rolled out the periodic table at uh-huh. one point. Yeah. You know, I'm like, and then and here and and ever since then, I've been kind of talking about um, elements and the way that they interact with one another, and and ions and electrons. Because it comes up, right? It, it, it's just like any. It's just like any science. If you you don't have to look far for it to come up. And I don't know it very well, but enough that if she says, "Why is this?" You know, why did the salt do that? I'm like, well, interesting. You know, I've got just enough that I can that I can tie it back in. And Adam's bomb has become a way that I. Like an, uh, because she's because she's interested in it. How could you not be? All you have to do is see one atoms bomb, and you know something. Something's up here. Something what cool is going on. Yeah, right. And how the heck did they do this? Uh, I still, you know, I'm in, uh, am filled with wonder. So we're driving by Hanford, you know, and it's the middle of nowhere. It's the desert. We're on our way home. Everybody just wants to get there, but I'm like, we're gonna go. I'm sorry. I know you said no more missions, but we're going to go out of the way to go look at Hanford and just appraise it. Not because there's anything really to see except some smokestacks in the distance, but it's important that you, you know, it's important that you know what it is, what it looks like, because you'll read about it and you'll have been here. And also you kind of need to pay a little, you know, you, you need to... You need to go to those places and and take a knee, right? In, in some Absolutely, way. yeah, sure. Because it's like, I mean, this is a this is a world historical thing. The the, the UFOs wouldn't have bothered contacting us, nope. Dan. They nope. wouldn't have come up from their ocean nope. bottom layers if it weren't for Hanford. Yeah, they were waiting for it. They were, yeah. So you know that kind of thing. Obviously, I really enjoy it. She is trying to figure out how much of it she knows some of it she needs to scorn 
because it's important that you scorn your father a little in, bit in some things, right? Yeah. yeah. But at, at one point, we're driving along, and she she's in the backseat because I bought her a paper atlas because it feels like, look, if you when you drive across America, you have to have a paper atlas. If you just if you're just looking at maps on your phone, right? It's an it's an impoverished experience. You need to be able to flip back and forth from the pages. You need to try to follow the road as it goes across the the binding of the map and onto the next map and doesn't quite line up. And it's not, and it, it's always, you're always looking for a spot that ends up in between two maps. That's important. That's just as important as, you know, learning to build a fire. And so she's in the back, you know, puttering around with her atlas. And at a certain point she says, um, it's, it becomes clear that she is independently memorizing the state capitals and no one's ever suggested to her that that's even a thing. Like I've never said one day you'll, you'll memorize the state capitals. It's one of the things that we do in American history class in seventh or eighth grade. Uh, Everybody has to do it. No one remembers them. It's the, it's a classic example of wasted time that keeps seventh graders from smoking cigarettes and having sex. <laughs> right. I memorized all the state capitals. I don't remember them. But I hear her in the back, you know, puttering along, kind of, you know, humming to herself. And I realize she's she's memorizing the state capitals. And eventually she says, want to know how many state capitals I know? Nice. And I'm like, do I? And yeah. she runs down and she's got 18 or 19 state capitals committed to memory. And, um, you know, and and we had visited several of them. So she was tying, she was doing the, the best possible thing. Tie the, the new information you have to a firsthand experience. Like, we've been to Des Moines, Iowa. We've driven up to the Capitol building and looked at it. You know, we've been to Helena, Montana. We've done... We've been to these places on this trip, and and it wasn't a coincidence that I took us to state capitals. And um, but she, but this wasn't a thing. It hadn't even. I mean, if it had occurred to me, Dan, I absolutely would have said, "Why don't you memorize the state capitals?" And she would have hated it. Right. If it had been your idea, forget it. Right. It would have just seemed like a chore. Another one of Dad's dumb things. But Something I'm just, never going to want to know, never going to need to use. <laughs> but, but here, you know, here she is. She's, you know, she's probably by now, because it's the type of thing she'll keep working on. So she's probably halfway to knowing all the state capitals. That's impressive. She's several years ahead of the time that I was forced to learn and then immediately tried to forget all of the state capitals. I used to know every country in Africa, but then a lot of them changed after I learned them all, a lot of them changed their names and some of them changed their borders. And now, and at a certain point I got a little bit lost and then you just surrender and I've, I've, I've lost my way. If you gave me a, a, a map of Africa with all the nations, you know, I could, I could, it'd be like, it'd be like solving the Sunday crossword puzzle. I'd work on it for a while. I'd walk away, I'd come back and go, mm. Rhodesia is not a country. What is it called now? You know, like I, it would be one of those. 
yeah, hopefully, hopefully this is a trip that. How did her? How did her mom enjoy the experience? <clears throat> I think she enjoyed it a lot, but but we also get to the heart of the difference between a vacation and a trip. Uh-huh. And my daughter's mother is someone who wants to go on vacation. She wants to have a vacation. She enjoys vacations. And she loves a trip. But what she is always trying to do is find the vacation inside the trip. And I'm absolutely the opposite. I'm always trying to find the trip in any vacation. I don't know. I don't know what to do on vacation. I would never take a vacation. The idea of going somewhere just to be there is very alien to me. Over the years, there have been times when I've you know, I found a certain cafe somewhere and I've gotten up every morning and gone and had a little espresso and read the Herald Tribune and I felt like, I, this is all I need. All I need today is just to have done this. I had an espresso. I read the newspaper. I can call it a day. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to watch the people go by. And those are great moments. But most of the time I feel like I've had an espresso. I read the newspaper. Now it's time to go find the catacombs, and in particular, the ones that are off limits. You know, it, I, it's time to go into the into the crypt. Right. And it's not even really that I'm happiest in the crypt. It's just that you know I want the mission to give purpose to the vacation. And so in driving across the country, you know, she's um, taking it all in. She's enjoying the experience. She's enjoying the, the, the family all being together. Um, but her, her side motivation is to find the comforts, right? The, the good meal, the, Nice to make hotel. it to make it into or feel like a vacation, to make it feel like a thing that isn't uh, isn't laborious, maybe. And I think a, a trip can can feel like work, but a vacation is not supposed to. That's right. That's right. She wants it not to feel like work. She wants it to feel like a reward for the hard work we do elsewhere. Right this is how we're going to spend our free time and we're going to do it um, by having fun and by being relaxed. Right. And of course, driving across the country is not always relaxing. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in the sense, I mean, when, when you see deer interact with a highway and you realize that, you know, deer aren't, smart let's say mm-hmm. that's not a word you would use is it not not to describe a deer right when you see a deer you i would think, say hmm, extraordinarily smart. stupid yeah right i mean they're gifted jumpers <laughs> yeah uh-huh. um but not smart and deer somehow in you know millennia of evolution um they understand 
the wolf. Mm -hmm. They understand the coyote. They understand the bear. They understand the mountain lion. Right. Uh, I think they very definitely understand the dog. Well, that's just a wolf. Uh, It's a wolf, right. A coyote, little wolf. Right. And they understand a human. But what they don't understand is a car. And from a human being standpoint, you look at the deer and you go, well, look, I know you're, I know you didn't evolve to understand what this is, but just using your senses, which are acute, your sense of smell, your sense of sight, your sense of hearing, they're all, they're all very attuned. Here is this, this block, this hurtling block with flashing lights and roaring sounds. Why would you leap in front of it, right? It doesn't seem like run from the wolf, run from the bear, run from the lion, run from the dog, run from- You would think run from the car. Run from, you know, I would think that a deer would just default run from everything. Right. Run from the bird, run, you know, it's what you do best. Run from the rabbit, run from the wind. But they (laughs) run into the car. Yeah. They jump right in front of the car and there is really not a damn thing you can do about it. You're driving along and you're like, there's a deer. Did this happen to you on this trip? Oh, you know, you live in Texas and you know what it's like in the, in the, the hills of, you know, over there in hill country. Yeah. There's a Uh, lot of deer where I live. it's, It's a, it's, and it can be carnage the way the cars interact with the deer right there around LBJ's house. Yeah. Right. It's hard. And it's, you know, it can be, it it can be really hard to travel that road. And there, you know, and you have little deer, weird little deer, deer that are the size of dogs, but in the, out in the mountain West, the deer are very large and they're just as dumb. (laughs) You know, they're dumber than the dumbest dog. And a dumb dog will run in front of a car. But it's usually because it's chasing a butterfly or something, you know, right. like it has, deer, a, it has a purpose for doing it. something. It didn't just look at a car and go, maybe the best place to interact with this foreign thing is in front of it, like to jump in front of it and not to challenge it. The deer's not jumping in front of the car to, to challenge it, or it's just like it has a, it has 360 degrees of choices of the next direction and, you know, and I think probably statistically it chooses the 270 degrees that aren't directly in front of the car m- probably most of the time. Mm-hmm. I've been very fortunate in all the years of driving across the country. I've never hit a deer. Oh, wow. And I know. Ne- I mean, lot- neither have I, but you've done quite a bit more driving. Well, and driving at night, driving fast, you know, you feel like the captain of the Titanic sometimes where you're like, I know there are deer everywhere. I know it's pitch black dark. It's, you know, it's summer and I'm in Wyoming and at the, it's just dumb luck that some big deer doesn't jump in front of my van at 80 miles an hour and, you know, it's a disaster. I've seen a lot of bands have hit deer and I've seen what happens to the van and to the band. And it can be, I mean, it's, it's always gnarly, but it can be really destructive. I had a friend in Alaska that hit a moose and the moose came through the front windshield and ended up in the back seat of his car. Oh my gosh. And he survived it. 
Um, but like, yeah, like no that's thanks. no joke. Like, like it's not like, I mean, I've, the, I think the largest thing that I ever unfortunately hit was a rabbit. Yeah. And I mean, didn't do a ton of damage. It did didn't it? do any damage. I mean, that wasn't even a, a, like a thought that I had, uh, but like a deer is a big animal. It's a heavy animal and it can do serious damage Oh, yeah. And and people wreck a lot when they hit it. Well, I'm I'm not a physicist, but I believe that the speed <laughs> you're going when you hit the deer has some effect on the damage. Oh yeah, you know the hit points. Right. You know you 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 roll for for damage, and uh, it's a twenty sided die. Yeah. But we're driving across the country, and I'm mar- I'm just marveling at how. In all of, you know, in in all of nature's magic, the deer has such a selective flight mechanism. They they're certainly aware of, alert to, even freaked out by cars. Yes, but they they respond so curiously. So you're saying you don't approve of their choice, is what I hear. I don't, you know what? I don't understand it well enough to judge it. As I'm driving, I say to my, uh, I say to my companions in the car, do not follow the example of the deer. Right. If you see something you don't understand, an UFO, for instance, right. Run away, a a giant ship, a thing, a, a pulsating orb. Yeah. Run away or go hide at least behind a tree. So driving is intrinsically stressful, not just because of deer, but just because in the same way that that they did not evolve to understand what a car was, we barely did. Being in a a little crate hurtling, you know, eight times faster than we could run and and you know and covering 600 miles a day all of that's very very strange to us to our natures and it and it it cannot help but add a sousson of anxiety to everything you know um you just have to feel you're always a fish out of water uh, even when you're very relaxed, sitting, listening to your tune, staring out the window, it's you, there's some part of you that realizes this isn't a movie. I'm not. I mean, even movies make our hearts beat faster. But so yeah, the idea at the end of the day that we would get somewhere and we'd relax and luxuriate with the with cucumber slices over our eyes. Right. That was not the kind of voyage that you were on. It's not the kind of voyage that I know how to facilitate, but she's very good at um, at finding a vacation even in my dumbest mission. Did she do that this time around? Uh, she did. She, you know, she did, and she realized I think pretty early on that that she needed to focus on finding a vacation for the members of our party who were open to vacationing. So my sister, so it was like a vacation within a a road trip. 
Almost. Yeah, that's right. When we got to the hotel, I didn't want to go in the swimming pool. I didn't want to put anything over my eyes. I wanted to, you know, go sit and shake the road off of myself and and have a Reese's peanut butter cup and and um, you know, and like every trip I go on, I want to go in and find sex on the Sex in the City on TV. Oh, it was during the Olympics, right? So every night we would go watch the Olympics. Right in the hotel, which is, you know, which turned out to be, I was pretty down on these Olympics, but it turned out to be great. A kind of, uh, you know, a sort of framework every night as at least the first three quarters of the trip, like, Hey, let's go see what's happening with the, with the bad men or the, or the, the synchronized, Dance gymnastics, dance nastics. Right. And you know, the 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 Summer Olympics like feature so many um powerful female athletes and young athletes. And so, you know, watching it with my daughter, you know, she's very attuned to when there is unequal representation. Uh. She is not very into movies that don't have a strong female lead. And she just, you know, she calls it out like, well, this is baloney. Where are the girls in this? And I'm always like, well, this was made in 1945 and girls didn't exist in the 40s. <laughs> right. And she's right. we didn't like, have I don't women. We didn't that. have women until recently. Yeah, that seems like that seems like pure bull. And I'm like, well, it's kind of bull, you know. Uh, but the Olympics aren't like that at all. You know, she's it's much easier to sit and talk about the sports and talk about the the body and what it does and, you know, how kinetic people can be. And, you know, that's all exciting. And, and, you know, the, like the gender of the participants doesn't even really enter into it because it's so, there's so much going on. Every event is different. And, um, so, you know, it's very, it, it's, it's thrilling to watch the Olympics with her. And do you remember your first Olympics? What was the first Olympics you remember? Gosh. 1980, the Olympics got boycotted by the U S right. Or yes. Did it, did it yes. The- so it would probably have been after that. I would guess. I don't, 84? I don't have very, yeah, I don't have very clear memories of it, but I do remember being a kid watching it, especially with my grandparents who really, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, but I do. I couldn't tell you what year that was. I mean, I was definitely double digit ages. So it was. It was age. Los Angeles in '84, probably. Uh, <clears throat> was was that where it was? I don't even remember where it was. Yeah, I mean, I believe that you are correct. My first Olympics was the '76 Olympics in Montreal, and <clears throat> I was seven and a half when that Olympics was broadcast and um and that was a thrilling olympics um you know the last the olympics prior to that 72 was really um a bummer you know that was the the munich right olympics but in 76 i mean montreal seemed like such an exotic and cool place and Nadia Comaneci got a got a ten, um, and I watched every I watched the Olympics every day, 
uh, I think it was on NBC. I mean, I even remember the like the channel and where you were sitting and yeah, it was it was we were we were so devoted to the Olympics then. It 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 was one of those things that felt, you know, even now it feels like a thing that brings the world together. But back then it was like the it felt like the whole planet put down everything to watch this contest. It really didn't. It doesn't seem like that anymore, does it? No, there's just too much. There's just too much else going on, and there's not a feeling. There's just not that feeling. We just don't have those feelings, right? Um, I was watching a, a, a not really related to Olympics in any, in any way, but there was a, there's a documentary about the Challenger disaster, and they're showing old footage and things like that from that time period. And I'm sure you vividly remember that. Anyone who was alive, I think, then very much remembers it. But you could see as they were starting the space program. You know, and it 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 kind of takes you through the entire the entire thing of like how they brought the astronauts together, how they started the whole space program, and all of this leading up to the disaster. And what I found was very very interesting about it was something that I don't even think they intended to show, but but was shown, and that's exactly what you're talking about, where people all seem to be even as relatively speaking comparatively to today how disconnected we all were from each other uh how on the same page everybody was about big things whether it was a shuttle launch or the olympics or whatever and there was still that i mean patriotism and being patriotic is almost like a bad word today but I mean this in the best possible way. There was very much that sort of tangible patriotism that people were very excited that our country is going to space. Like our astronauts that we, that are, they're from here, they're going to space. We're doing this thing. Like it was, and in the same way that I think people appreciate the Olympics or, you know, the closest thing I think that that's like that now is soccer, which people insist on calling football. I think that kind of enthusiasm and excitement, that seems to be the only place you'll find that now is there and maybe the Olympics, you know? Yeah, I think, as you know, I think a lot about how things have changed, change in general. And, um, you know, I revel in it a lot, but I I, I don't know if I ever told you, but I, I asked my dad, when he was 86 years old, if he would go ask his friends at, at his uh, old folks' home, you know, if he would if he would interrupt their Jello course and walk around and ask them a kind of simple question, which was, you know, here you are, you're all 86 ish. Um, let's divide your lives in half. Um, the first 43 years and the second 43 years. Hmm. My dad was born in 1921. So the first 43 years would take him to 1964. Kennedy had just been assassinated. The Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. Um, you know, the Mercury program was launching people into space. Right. 
Vietnam hadn't yet happened. The, the baby boomer, you know, thing hadn't happened. And then the second 43 years from 1964 to, you know, what would have been 2007, Vietnam, the baby boomers, the energy crisis, the, mm. um, you know, the sexual revolution, um, AIDS, increasing wealth disparity, the rise of the personal computer, uh, the man on the moon. And I said, you know, which of those two halves of your life did you feel like you saw the greatest change? Which, which of the two did, did things change more? And, you know, thinking about 1921, when my dad was born... Um, you know, he still laced up his shoes with a hook, right? He wore, he wore high socks and knickers mm-hmm. to school. Yeah. And the automobile and the airplane were still n- kind of new inventions, um, putt, 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 putt type of things. And everyone, you know, Everyone wore suits, even the hobos. Right. And there was, you know, an incredible segregation in the country. Um, Class segregation, race segregation, religious segregation. And then the second half of the... But but also, like, the technology, you know, that, that in that in the first 20 years of his life where, you know, by the end of world war two, there were jet airplanes. We were flying to space. We, um, had televisions and. Doesn't it seem like things have slowed down a lot? Well, so, so this was the thing that, that was, um, that, that where the answers really surprised me because I assumed, because by 1964 we had, we had recognizable jet airplanes, uh, uh, almost exactly of the kind that we use today, except the ones we use now are shittier. Like they're faster and quieter, but they're, it's a shittier experience. Um, we already had televisions, color televisions even, which we had fewer shows, but you know, it would be, if you saw a television now, it would be recognizable. Um, like the clothes would be recognizable. The rock music of 1964, we still listen to, and it's, yeah, yeah. Still, it's good. still better yeah. right, than, than almost anything subsequent. So what has changed in the second half of their lives, the second 47 years, you know, all those things that I kind of disparaged, the computer and the electric toaster and the refrigerator that talks to you, like how have any of those things, like I understand my mother grew up on a farm where she had an outdoor privy and they didn't have an electric, well, they didn't have electricity at first, but when they did get electricity, they didn't have appliances. They didn't have a hot water heater. They didn't, you know, they, at, when she, until she was in, what, elementary school, they fetched water from a well. So the difference between that and having a refrigerator, a stove, a washing machine. Now, what an enormous change. 
And the difference between the refrigerator, stove, and washing machine of 1964 and the one that we have today is it's just an incremental change. My, my refrigerator in my house is from 77, and it's loud, but it, it works. But they almost all said that the greater change was in the second half of their life. Interesting. And, and they meant that the social change um, trumped the technological change because, yeah, it was, you know, it was incredible to have um, clean drinking water and jet airplanes. But what, you know, what boggled their minds was um, women's rights and, um, and like the equal rights movements and, right. um, the idea that we had progressed so far and so fast in terms of of um, equitability and and that they said this even even conscious of the increase in in wealth disparity because in the course of their lives they'd seen that three or four times situations where well now the rich have all the money mm-hmm. but now there's a labor mu- movement. And well, now the labor movement's become a, a weird, corrupt thing, and you know, but there's tons of regulation. Oops, now there's no regulation, and now the rich have all the money. You know, they recognize that that was a cyclical thing, but you, they, but you couldn't put the genie back in the bottle. No, of people being, you know, liberated, and that was the thing that struck them all as having been the more profound change. So when That's I look at the yeah, when I look at the at the United States, when I look at the fact that in 1976 the whole world sat down and watched the Olympics, right? And it's what we all talked about. And everybody watched the Columbia launch and everybody watched the moon landing. I mean, everybody watched the moon landing. And the fact that there's none of that now. Yeah. Or very little. Um, if, if, if astronauts walked on the moon tomorrow, I think 80% of the people wouldn't, um, wouldn't register it, you know, or would, I mean, you see what it's like when, when NASA does something amazing, like a bunch of nerds all sit down in front of their computers and watch it, watch the little Rover run over the, but, but that's not, it's not even on television. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to watch it on the internet. It's a good point. So it's hard it's hard to know exactly what to lament. And I know a lot of a lot of futurists and modernists um and just regulars, you know, everybody celebrates the fact that they they celebrate they celebrate aspects of now that I don't. And they rue aspects of now um, that I don't. It's part of it's part of that growing feeling of being out of step. Where, and it's been going on. It's been going on for decades now. Because even in 1994, I felt like, what are you wearing those pants for? For the love of, you know, like I already was a curmudgeon. But I really don't want to miss judge what's 
what is the best change? And I don't want to privilege um, change that. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to mistake good change for bad. And I know all. You know, all change has collateral damage, and maybe it is. Um, maybe it's just the nature of things that we will all end up in clothes made of bark because no one is, you know, no one cares anymore about how long your shirt collar is. Right. But I'm, but having been raised there, I was talking to Ken yesterday because his, his son who's 18 was over, we were recording omnibus and, and uh, he was talking about his freshman dorm. He's about to move into his freshman dorm. And he was all bent out of shape because the dorm that they assigned him didn't, it was an old dorm and it didn't have broadband. Mm. Oh, in college? It's an old dorm. What do you, how is that? Po- I mean, it's just a wire. Why? What, what's the problem? It's a dorm from the seventies and they were some brutalist dorm that they had scheduled to tear down. And then they decided that the last minute they couldn't tear it down. Because right, but they just need, like run it. it's a wire. Like it's yeah. not like it's not like a big deal to get internet to it. I don't know. Maybe the walls are all poured concrete and they can't you know, they'd have to string it along the outside of the building like Christmas lights. Mm. But he ended up getting into a dorm that that did have all mod cons. And in the kind of like, well, let me tell you about the old days, I realized, oh wait, you know, on my dorm in my dorm my freshman year, every floor of my dorm, there were four floors to DeSmet Hall, mm-hmm. every floor had a phone. It was halfway down the hall, and when it rang, the person who was closest to it picked it up and directed the call to its intended recipient by shouting down the hall. Right. Roderick! <laughs> phone and then you'd you know they'd sort of set up, it up on top of it the little yeah, hand receiver yeah and you'd walk up and be like hello walk down and talk and if you wanted to call somebody you um it was a pay phone i guess yeah uh and this was i went to college right after the introduction of those phone cards where you could dial the number and then dial your code number right and so that way, in, instead of having to put a million coins in or instead of having to use whatever the local call collect, uh, yeah, the local system was, you would, you were, you're much better off than that. And in those early years, I probably made equal numbers of collect calls because the phone cards, you know, didn't, they, I didn't know, they didn't always work and I didn't always have one. But, you know, I'm telling this story like, I'm not that old, although I am over the I'm over the 43 mark for now being in the second half of this right, experiment. Right. Because he was you were saying he was 86. Yeah. So, you know, looking at my life up to the point that I was 43, 
yeah, it feels of a piece, right? The in 1986, the idea that you would that each dorm room would have its own phone felt like, yeah, sure, somewhere in America there's a college where every kid has their own phone in right. their room. Right. But that's a level of decadence that's probably unhealthy for those kids. Because what if you could just talk on the phone anytime you wanted? What else would you do? You'd just sit <laughs> right. and talk on the You'd phone. You wouldn't even go phone. to class. Yeah. But even until even until I was 43, even with cell phones, even with the internet, it still felt very much like, well, the internet is the same as writing letters to people. It's just faster. And cell phones are the same as phones. You can just carry them with you. But all the other changes that I never could have anticipated, just like we never in that dorm could have anticipated that one day it would not, those questions wouldn't be relevant anymore. Yeah, sure, you got a phone on your watch. Dick Tracy had that. But that's not how we interact with each other anymore. You don't make phone calls, really. And the nature of the way we talk and what we're talking about is the thing that changed. The, the why we communicate and what we communicate about is the thing that science fiction writers couldn't predict. Right. The fact that like the uh, they would have said everyone will have their own phone line in their own room. And now the attitude is we don't even need the phone. Who wants that? Why would you want a phone line in your room? Nobody. Nobody wants that. No. They want broadband for gaming. Right. <clears throat> and that would have... I like mean, That wouldn't even have occurred to, as a thing that anyone would want or need. You could explain it to me as a as a as a twenty year old. In the future, everybody's going to want to, you know, broadband for gaming, and I would have understood, but I wouldn't have been able to put together a a a picture of society, a picture of what the world right what what the world felt like to live in, and you know, and I think that's what my father and his friends were were saying because the first half of their lives the technology changed so much and it was all very exciting and it was like wow now we can get from here to there in you know half the time but what it felt like to live in the world didn't really change like you could travel across america in half the time if you could afford it Right. And when you did that, you dressed like you did when you went on a train. Right. And when you got there, there were porters to carry your bags, like there had been for trains. Right. Really like there had been for stagecoaches. Yeah, right. And, you know, that was true in my own childhood. When you went to the airport, there was, it felt like going to a train station more than a spaceport. Even though it looked like a looked spacey, so what my you know what my dad was trying to explain, and I didn't really understand it even then, was that they could never have predicted what it felt like to live 
in the second half of their lives. Mm. And I think a lot of that was, you know, was founded in confusion and disorientation. You know, after Vietnam, you know, up until Vietnam, my dad had never considered that the United States would not be the righteous actor. Mm-hmm. And to have the, and you know, and he was a, he was a liberal Democrat. I mean, he was a liberal, liberal Democrat. Right. But, but the idea that the United States wouldn't um, be acting in good faith was a, uh, it was then more a mat- more than just a matter of disagreement between you know people of good faith it it became a this whole separate universe of like well then what what are we doing if um if the government is lying to us <laughs> and and so i i find myself now in middle age kind of in that stew there isn't quite a vietnam there's not a feeling of the scales falling from my eyes. You know, I'm not, I was not naive and now can see. It's more a feeling of decay and rot. And, of, and that disillusionment isn't like surprise as much as it is disappointment. Hmm. And I wonder if that isn't maybe more akin to the sort of cyclical approach that they, that that generation had to looking at trends in wealth disparity where they said, yeah, this comes and goes. And, you know, right now it's these assholes on wall street. Um, you know, when my father was young, it was those assholes at the railroads and before that, it was people trying to corner the diamond market. <laughs> and right now, it's it's tech and it's big agriculture and big pharma. And it's just, you know, from their perspective, from my, you know, my dad now has been dead. My dad would be 100 years old this October. Oh, wow. And, wow. you know, from his perspective, he probably, if he were alive, I know that he would be watching Biden's antitrust, uh, you know, putting teeth back into the antitrust legislation. And he would say, God damn right. You know, uh, because he believed that that stuff, you know, that the unscrupulous people were always going to try and find a way. And that was the point of government. Um, that, that government is really, often playing whack-a-mole and there's always somebody that's going to try to graze their sheep on BLM land without paying. And there's always somebody that's going to try and, and hawk a patent medicine or, um, or, you know, like steal the family farm or what, you know, or, or take pension plans and invest them in, bundled mortgages right, right, and the government is the only authority that can, if it's working properly, that can 
do something about it. And then, then there will be something else, you know, and that's why government isn't perfect. But he would say, yes, hell yes. And he would be looking to the next 20 or 30 years as a period where now we're going to redress that. We're going to take that concentrated money out of the hands of that 1%. We're going to redistribute it. We're going to, you know, it's going to be a time of reordering. And so I'm sitting here at this point in my life wondering, is the second half of my life going to seem more impressive or less? Because it's not necessarily so that the, that the, you know, if the future is two steps forward, one step back, sometimes a generation lives half of their life through a step back. And you get to the end and you go, you know, we didn't, we didn't get as far as I hoped. 